Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In 2018, Stacey Abrams ran in Georgia to become the nation's first African-American female governor. Despite a narrow defeat in the race, Abrams and her campaign launched a new national conversation about the importance of voting rights by shining a light on voter suppression efforts in Georgia and nationwide. As part of the Brookings Institution's celebration of Black History Month, Abrams visited the Brookings Institution to discuss how her organization, Fair Fight Georgia, is addressing the problem of voter suppression as the African-American electorate and candidates claim more political space. She was joined on the Brookings stage by the New Yorker's Jelani Cobb, who is also a professor of journalism at Columbia University. In today's episode of the Brookings Cafeteria, you'll hear the conversation between Abrams and Cobb that took place at Brookings. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, Intersections, and 5 on 45. Find them on our website, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here are Stacey Abrams and Jelani Cobb. And I guess we'll start with the kind of overarching question, uh, which is about, you know, the thing that ties together the midterms, ties together 2016, uh, will likely be a prominent theme in 2020, and that is the fight around uh, voter suppression. And can you just talk for a minute about the architecture of voter suppression and how it functions and what we can, well, we'll I'll say what we can do about it, but how, how, do, how exactly do the mechanics of this work? Sure. So first I want to say thank you so much for taking the time and I want to say thank you to Dr. Gare and to Brookings for having me. Uh, my, my belief in the responsibility to fight voter suppression started when I was growing up. My parents were both civil rights activists as teenagers in Mississippi. My dad was arrested signing people up to vote when he was 16. And my mom used to take us with her when she would pick us up from school on election days. She would take us with her to vote. There were six of us, so we looked like make way for ducklings spilling out. (laughs) Um, But we were raised to understand that voting is directly tied to the services and policies that you want to see. Voter suppression acts as a means of denying those policies reality, and it is baked into the DNA of America. It has been perfected in recent years, in the last two decades, in in a way that lets us forget that it's real because it has so many pieces, and that's, that's the architecture. Voter suppression isn't simply saying you can't vote. Voter suppression is both a physical activity, but it's also a psychic effect. Telling people their votes won't count, telling people that the system is rigged, has the act of actually stopping people from trying to use it. Uh, And then, just to make sure it works, there is the actual apparatus. And I think about it in three ways. There is the registration access, making it difficult to get on the rolls. Uh, You cannot vote in the United States unless you are signed up to do so. It's like having a driver's license. And so what we have found is that, depending on the state you're in, there have been impediments put in place to registration. If you're in Texas, they tell third-party organizations it's difficult to register you. That matters because the hardest to register communities are communities of color, newly registered citizens, and low-income communities. They require third parties to come to them because they often don't know how to do it on their own. In Georgia, we had uh, sort of the trifecta of it was hard to get on the rolls because the Secretary of State kept raiding the offices or 
um, attacking those who were doing third-party registrations. He then used what's called exact match, uh, which said that if your name has any error when someone is typing it into the system, that would be a predicate for denying you the right to vote. And in Georgia in 2018, 53,000 people were caught up in this bureaucratic nightmare. So let's say your last name is Del Rios, and you spell it D-E-L space R-I-O-S. Is that your last name? Under Georgia law, or not Georgia law, but Georgia's practice on your driver's license, they take out the space. So that becomes the database that is used. But your parents named you Del Rios with a space. So you put in your name the way it is on your birth certificate and on your Social Security card. But in Georgia, because the Driver's License Administration does not recognize the space, you are denied the right to vote because it does not exactly match the database. 53,000 people were denied, 90% of whom were people of color. The third part is that if you are a naturalized citizen, there were some parts of the Secretary of State's office that were demanding that you use your alien registration number as part of your application. It is against the federal law to use your alien registration number because you're no longer an alien. You are now a citizen. And so in order to achieve the right to vote, you were being denied access. So registration is the first. And then there's the use it or lose it laws. That's uh, the Ohio case that was just settled by the Supreme Court. In the United States, we do not have mandatory voting. Use it or lose it laws were originally designed to say that if you're dead or you've moved, you probably shouldn't vote where you used to live. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But it's now been used to say if you don't vote in a certain number of successive elections, that can be used as a reason to take you off the rolls. But the problem is it's it's not precise. And so you have hundreds of thousands of people who are removed from the rolls who voted. And they don't find out they've been removed until they go to vote But because most of these states don't do same-day registration, you're just denied the right to vote. So that's the first piece, registration. Second is ballot access. Ballot access is you, in states that have um, absentee balloting, you apply for an absentee ballot. It may or may not arrive. Uh, Jermaine Dupree, who is so, so deaf, he had to fly his daughter from Miami because her absentee ballot, which she applied for, never showed up. Mm. Jermaine Dupree ain't my daddy. So... (laughs) If you do not have someone who is wealthy enough to actually fly you home to vote, you've been suppressed because your right to vote has been denied because you didn't get your absentee ballot. If you live in Mississippi or Alabama, you may have to pay a notary public to verify that you have submitted your ballot properly, which means you have to pay someone for the right to vote. Uh, so ballot access becomes an issue. It also is an issue with, poll- if, with early voting, moving polling places. Georgia has about 3,000 polling places, precincts. They shut down 214 of them. If you live in a county where there are only two, and now there's one and you don't have a car, and the one that you used to go to is down the street and the one you have to go to now is five to ten miles away, you're not going to be able to vote because you don't have a car. And so ballot access becomes an issue. And then the third is counting the ballots. And I just referred to that as the Florida problem. Mm. Uh, I'm sure the people of Florida are very happy, very happy to yeah. hear that. I mean, they, they've been the most constant example of this. But that is once you submitted your ballot, did it actually count? Did they count your, your did they actually process it? Uh, in Georgia, we had to go to court four times in the 10-day period between Election Day and the day of my non-concession speech. And we got three and a half verdicts, yes, we got three and a half verdicts in our, in our um, favor. And part of that was that certain counties were throwing out absentee ballots because the signature didn't match. 
my signature doesn't match from Kroger to Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. And they were matching it against your driver's license that you signed 10 years ago before you actually figured out how to do the curly S that you liked. Mm -hmm. So that was being used to deny people the right to vote. They were throwing out um, absentee ballots because people put the date in the wrong place because there are two lines that said date. One was birth date and the other was the date that you were submitting it. But it didn't say birth date and date of submission. It just said date. Mm -hmm. And certain counties uh, were denying the right to vote. And so across the country, that ballot counting becomes the issue. So registration, ballot access, and ballot counting, that's how suppression works. Mm -hmm. So I guess the thing that's interesting is that there's a narrative that we have about voting rights and... Anybody who's seen Eyes on the Prize, anybody who's taken an African-American history class, we know that narrative. You know, it's uh, Thurgood Marshall fighting against the white primary in Texas. Uh, It is uh, the 1965 Selma march. It's the kind of all the pinnacle points um, in access to the ballot. How has this been able to persist 50-plus years after the Voting Rights Act how is this able to be the case? I mean, the Voting Rights Act, the last time it was reauthorized, um, was 98-0 in the Senate. And yet these deeply anti-democratic, racist practices are able to persist to the current day. How do, how do we get into this situation? We've never not been in the situation. What has happened is they've perfected the insidious approach to it. It used to be very plain. You just denied them the right to vote. You denied African Americans the right to vote. You denied women the right to vote. It wasn't until the 20th century that Native Americans were allowed to vote. And so it's for, for most of Americans, American history, the denial was de jure. It was in the law that you couldn't vote. The Voting Rights Act forced it into de facto uh, denial. And that was putting in place these obstacles and these barriers that on their face may seem fairly low bars to jump over, but when, it, when they're yoked together into a system, they make it difficult to vote. And the challenge that happened for us is the Shelby decision mm-hmm. in 2013. Uh, because, yes, people of good conscience voted for the Voting Rights Act, but so did people who just wanted to get reelected and didn't want to be called racist. And what happened in 2013 was that the, the guardrails that created... Uh, that kept de facto, segre- de facto uh, voter suppression in check, those guardrails were removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Georgia, again, is one of the states that post-Shelby has implemented most of the rules that are considered to be the most insidious when it comes to voter suppression. Mm-hmm. And I think the inflection point has been the demographic change in America. Mm-hmm. It's fine for everyone to vote as long as they vote the way you want them to. Mm-hmm. What has happened is that you have a new American majority that is largely comprised of people of color, uh, millennials and Gen Z, uh, unmarried white women, and progressives across the country of good conscience, regardless of race, who have all aligned themselves on the side of certain issues. And the only way to stop those issues from gaining primacy and gaining voice is voter suppression. And that inflection point has accelerated the urgency on the other side because you can only control public policy in a democracy by controlling who sets the policy. Mm-hmm. And voter suppression is the most effective way to block that policy because if you can never elect leaders who reflect your values, your, those values never gain traction in the public domain. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, so, I mean, it's interesting talking about Shelby. Um, I was in North Carolina and I was following uh, Reverend William Barber around, um, another person who's done a lot of work on this. And, uh, you know, I get to this place and people are talking about uh, voter uh, suppression issues in the state. And uh, they, he's recalling a conversation he's had with uh, a local elected official. And one of the, the truisms of American politics is the lower you go um, on the hierarchy, the, le the less elegant the lies are. And so, you know, this person uh, said, uh, you know, it was being a, a confronted about voter suppression and said it was told that it was racist. And he said, uh, we don't suppress your votes because you're black. We suppress your votes because you vote for Democrats. And so no idea that what was wrong, what was wrong with that statement. This guy was like, all right then. Well, I mean, now we've cleared that up. I guess we can just go on about our business. Um, but there was also another kind of aspect of this, which was like striking and almost seems like someplace that you, something you'd hear about um, in a country that does not have a very long history of, um, of democratic, elect, democratic elections. And that is that one of the candidates in the election was in fact charged with overseeing the election in which he was running. I have no experience with that. <laughs> I mean, just as a personal question, like if you're, as you're going into this, like what is your thinking about, it's almost saying like I, it's, the, the analogy people gave was like it's being in a boxing match where you're fighting somebody who's your opponent and the referee. Yes. And, well, I would add one more. He was also the scorekeeper. And the scorekeeper, right. Uh, and, and that's the challenge. And, and that, again, goes to the insidiousness of voter suppression. It was entirely legal. In fact, it's constitutional that he got to do that. The laws allow certain things, and that's one of the lessons from Brown v. Board of Education. When it comes to voter suppression, it is not simply an act of something being illegal. It is something being unethical and immoral and we had a layer of incompetence that you know, further um, stirred the pot. But the reality was what he did was entirely legal and wholly wrong. Mm. But because the law permits it, the remedies are limited unless you have people who are in power who say that this law should be changed. But you can't get the people into power because the laws say that they can use that power to stop you from voting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's that vicious cycle that is so concerning to me, and it's why voter suppression, in my mind, has to be considered the crisis of our day, because the erosion of our democracy is not simply an authoritarian regime. It is actually using the laws as they exist to undermine the very lawmaking that we desire and that we deserve. Mm. I mean, it also seems to me like, and I want to talk about Fair Fight and what you're doing um, in response to this, but it, it also seems to me that being somebody that looks at these questions from a historical point of view, that it was these very tactics that led to the grassroots groundswell of activity in the first place. And so it seemed almost like if you place a pot on the stove and the stove begin and the pot begins to boil, and then you turn down the burner and it stops boiling, that you could walk away and come back and go, I wonder what will happen if I turn this boiler this this back up and not realize that it's going to have a similar effect. And so in that regard, that's what I thought of when, when I saw um, 
the news about you being involved in organizing uh, Fair Fight. And so could you talk a little bit about what you're doing, what Fair Fight is doing, and, and what the uh, strategy is in response to what's happening in Georgia? Sure. So November 6th, the uh, day that we'll live. No, sorry. Anyway. <laughs> it, just, it will just live. All right. <laughs> That evening, you know, I had a decision to make like so many other candidates. Uh, our race was too close to call, but there were cries for me to concede or to say, just to, you know, to call it. And I wouldn't in part because we were getting phone calls and emails from across the state of Georgia about challenges people were facing. So in the, in the litany, I, I was cutting myself short, but in the litany of counting ballots and ballot access, Georgia had, according to uh, a poll done by, or survey done by Black Pack, had 40% longer lines for African Americans than any state in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, black people were standing in line for up to four hours, and that's assuming they got to vote. Mm -hmm. If you're a shift worker and every hour you stand in line is an hour worth of pay you're losing, you are not often able to miss an entire day's pay to cast a vote. And so a lot of people just abandoned the opportunity and they went home or went back to work. Uh, and that's not counting the students at the Atlanta University Center who were given provisional ballots because they ran out of paper um, or were not given provisional ballots because they ran out of paper. They were told we had poll workers who were cherry picking who would get a ballot based on whether they thought they looked like someone who should be able to vote. Uh, this was happening in the cradle of the civil rights movement, November 6, 2018. And so that evening, my decision to demand that every vote be counted was driven less by a belief that I would be able to overcome the perfidy and bad actions of the Secretary of State, and more because I understood in that moment, my campaign was premised on being a voice for people who had not been seen and heard in the body politic. And my responsibility was to continue to be that voice, regardless of what it meant for my potential outcome. And over the next 10 days, we were able to file lawsuits and we were able to make incremental progress. But at the same time, the other side was destroying ballots and not following the law. And by the time we got to November 16th, at the end of the 10-day period, what had happened was that we had been able to demonstrate that voter suppression was real. We'd received more than 50,000 phone calls and we all know that if 50,000 people called, imagine who didn't call, who didn't know they should call or could call. And in that moment, the responsibility I had was to decide whether I was going to launch a legal battle for myself, which would allow me to contest the election and possibly see if I could become governor anyway, or if I could call an end to that contest, but instead start what I believe to be the larger, more important battle, which is to fight for a fair election in Georgia, and I was not alone. My, my campaign was not the only campaign that faced this, this challenge. I was just the most public one. And you know, as a writer, as a fiction writer, it was the perfect archetype. I mean, was, mm. The villain was clear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just need a twirly mustache and a railroad track. I mean, I mean, you're the Secretary of State declaring yourself the victor of an election you oversaw, and you surprisingly won, okay? And I was the first African-American woman to ever have the opportunity, and I came this close. I mean, it's a great narrative if you like tragedies. Um, <laughs> and for me, the response to, to sorrow, the response to anger, 
is action. Uh, I, I was raised to... I was raised to believe that you don't simply identify problems. You have to figure out how you intend to solve them. And that sometimes solving the problem doesn't mean you actually win. So the solution to this challenge does not mean I get to be governor. If we fix all of the election laws in Georgia, nothing will undo the decision made on November 6, 2018. But fair fight action is my responsibility because it says that this should not happen to anyone else that the election that's happening, there's, a, a, there's going to be an election in March in Gwinnett County, which is the most diverse county in Georgia, to determine whether they get access to public transit. I mean, it's 2019, and we're having a, a fight over whether people should be able to get public transit. My responsibility through Fair Fight is to lift up that responsibility and to talk about why that vote matters and to make sure it's a fair fight. And so what we're doing is three things. One is that we, are, we filed a mammoth lawsuit, 64-page complaint, that, as I said, yokes together all of those pieces of voter suppression and says that as a system in the state of Georgia, the right to vote has been substantially harmed and that disenfranchisement is occurring at a level that violates the 14th and 15th Amendments, the Voting Rights Act, HAVA, and the Georgia Constitution, and it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is that we are pushing for better legislation, uh, because we know that litigation may not turn out the way we want it to. We're also pushing for better legislation. Uh, Luckily, there's an organization that's been created actually by members of the House of Representatives and the Senate in Georgia called the Voting Rights Caucus, and they're going to be pushing for better laws around absentee ballots, but also to stop us from having hackable machines, because that was also an issue with the Secretary of State. Uh, He oversaw some of the oldest and most incompetent machines in the country and refused Homeland Security support to ensure that the the right to vote wasn't compromised. Mm. And then the third is advocacy. We have to continue to tie the vote to the issues. Because voting by itself is, okay, fine, we'll vote. But when people understand that if you want access to health care, you have to vote. If you believe criminal justice reform is real and true, you have to vote. If you want people to pick up your trash every week and not every two weeks, you have to vote. And so part of Fair Fight's responsibility is to connect the dots between the public policy outcomes that are either impugned by or made real by voting. Hmm. Um, so then I want to go back to a conversation we had. I think it was actually before you announced your candidacy. And so uh, we talked about your strategy um, of bringing in you know, more people, expanding the electorate, and... You know, the previous, the last election, 2014, uh, Nathan Deal and Jason Carter, I think it was 2.4, 2.5 million people voted in that election. And in this election, 3.9 million people voted. And so you got, uh, he got about 1.1 million voters and you got about 1.9, is it? 0.9 million to 23,000. Oh, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I was counting. Not that, not you were counting. <laughs> so it's an 800,000 voter um, expansion. And so when we had this conversation, though, uh, and you were talking about this, and so if you live in Georgia for any point in time, for any, within six months, you will hear about the 500,000 unregistered black voters. I lived in Atlanta for 11 years. And I kept hearing about the 500,000 unregistered black voters. And so we were talking, you said that this was, you know, you're going to expand the electorate and bring people out. 
And I was like, Stacy, do those people even exist? I was like, are we sure that those people are there? And, and, and you were like, these people are there. They are a viable um, you know, electorate. And I was like, but they didn't come out for Obama. And you were like, we're going to do things that actually go further than what the Obama campaign did in Georgia to make, this, to make a difference here. And so one, I want to concede being wrong in my skepticism because you could hear my eyebrow raise over the phone. I heard your eyes roll. You heard my eyes roll. <laughs> um, but the other part of it is more, more significantly, what goes into mobilizing these electorates, not just in Georgia, but specifically your experience in Georgia, and is that applicable to progressives and people of color running in the South and, and elsewhere uh, and in the coming elections? Now, Brookings is nonpartisan. I don't have that problem. So I, I am partisan. And I will say this advice is not for anyone who's not a Democrat. Um, <laughs> Number one, you, you have to start early. And when you and I had the conversation, it was after I'd been in the leadership position in the House for seven years. Mm-hmm. And over that seven-year period, I had been laying the groundwork for this transformation in our electorate. Mm-hmm. Number one, you have to hire people who can go into these communities, who understand these communities. Um, and, who ha- and, and, and it is true that anyone can ask. But people tend to listen to those who remind them of themselves. Cultural competence matters. It is a real thing. And so what we had been doing since I became leader, I'd been building a team of young people, by and large, because I couldn't pay them much. Uh, They were young, training them to do this work Mm -hmm. and also training them to be hired by campaigns uh, because often campaigns tend to relegate communities of color in particular to certain jobs and that's it. And so we had been working for, the, for seven years to build a cohort that was multiracial, multiethnic, reflected uh, religious differences, uh, sexual orientation differences. We had a truly representative sample of Georgia embedded in our campaign, and that is critical. Because when we launched in May of 2017, a year before the election, we were the only campaign going into communities. We had the first Latino media roundtable, the first... Asian Pacific Islander Roundtable, the first LGBTQ Roundtable. We met with black papers, but we also talked about how do we invest in each of your mediums? How do we make sure that while everyone's thinking about how do I get on you know, ABC, I'm making sure that I'm in the patch dispos. You know, we are pushing things into communities at a local level. The second, so that was, that was number two. Number three was that we actually began conversations in community. We didn't create artificial groups. We asked people who said they were interested, what do you want to do? And then we funded them. We resourced that. Uh, There were a lot of pundits who decried our campaign for being profligate with our spending because we were spending up to 80% of our money every month reaching out to voters, which they thought was insane. They were like, I mean, she's she's talking to voters. She should be saving that money for media. Like, I want them to vote, so I'm going to ask them to vote. Uh, But that investment was different, and these are communities that never seen it. By the time we got to the general, we were the first campaign in Georgia history to run Spanish-language television ads. Seriously? Yes. Wow. (laughs) We spent money on... Oh, thank you. We we ran the first... That's astonishing. Yes, but but real. Mm -hmm. And we ran the first bilingual canvas. Mm -hmm. We had our walk cards in Spanish, Korean, Vietnamese, Chinese... 
we made sure that every community, regardless of their size, was hearing from us because we don't believe in turnout models, meaning that you just go to the people who are going to vote for you and you talk to them at the end. Everyone was a persuasion target. I had to convince everyone they liked me. I didn't take anyone for granted. And that's why we were also the only campaign, I believe, that was on both country music radio and urban radio at the exact same time. <laughs> but what we did differently was that we spent a commensurate amount based on the size of the population. And what had happened in previous elections was that there was an oversampled spending on communities that were very narrowly likely to vote. And there was a deep underspend in communities that shared your values but were taken for granted. I took nothing for granted. And in the end, we ran a campaign that was the most, we raised more money than any campaign in Georgia history. Mm -hmm. I received more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, including President Obama and Secretary Clinton. Mm -hmm. We tripled Latino turnout, tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout, increased youth turnout by 139%. And in 2014, hold on, one more number. In 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted. Mm -hmm. In 2018, 1.2 million African-Americans voted for me. And, and all of that centering of communities of color, having conversations about the LGBTQ community as an ally, doing all of that work was supposed to distance me from the white vote. I received a higher percentage of the white vote than any candidate on the Democratic side of the aisle in more, more than 20 years. Mm. I mean, that's fascinating because people usually decry um, that very kind of outreach, which is basically democracy, as identity politics, yes. right? <laughs> but people, like, yeah. disparage it as, as identity politics. And um, Alicia Garza, who was one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, had a really great line about that. She said, uh, yeah, we're organizing people who identify as being left out. Yes. And, um, and so it's, it's amazing that you could pull that off. So uh, if you're saying... For Georgia, uh, three or four bullet point things that you do right off the bat to make this a more democratic state, like what do you change? Absentee ballot rules need to be uniform. There shouldn't be different democracy based on your county. Uh, number two, registration rules need to be uniform and they should not disadvantage communities that are trying to register. And three, uh, we need new machines and they need to be hand-marked paper ballots that are verifiable, auditable, and accessible. Uh, we had too many counties and too many precincts where you had three or 4,000 people showing up and they had two machines, one that was missing a power cord. Mm. Um, so it's making sure every vote is, making sure everyone gets registered, making sure that folks have actual access to the ballot, and making sure every vote gets counted. Mm. Um, and so that's a, a very, like, Georgia-specific question. Then I want to ask you a kind of bigger national, well, I think I can fit in two quick questions, a bigger national question, which is that you commented on this um, Recently, and you know the kind of looming possibility that the president will declare uh, a state of emergency uh, as a means of uh, you know getting funds to build his border wall, and you had a very succinct uh, explanation of how people should respond to that. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the reality: he is either going to do it or he is not. The rationale for doing so is that he is trying to gain political clout, having failed miserably in the actual political process. Mm -hmm. And that political clout is only gained by us giving him airtime and space 
and for there to be American histrionics over once again his flouting of our basic norms. We have a system that will deal with that, the judicial system. There will be lawsuits filed, and it is absolutely a, a true thing that Nancy Pelosi and others should decry the lawlessness of his behavior. But what we cannot do is turn it into a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week circus where we gnash our teeth and beat our breasts that he is once again proving that he does not understand how America works. Mm -hmm. And so I will think we have, to, we have to deny him the audience. Mm -hmm. For a complete audio of this event, featuring an introduction by Brookings Executive Vice President Ted Geyer, plus a Q&A session with the audience, visit our website or subscribe to our event podcast channel. Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reverano, with assistance from Mark Holscher. The producers are Chris McKenna and Brennan Hoban. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahan provide design and web support. Our intern this semester is Quinn Lucas. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, Intersections, 5 on 45, and Our Events Podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.